Happy New Year, and I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas. This is our first episode of 2024, and we've got some great stuff for you today, but hopefully you rang in the new year just a little bit better than we did. Not, not that we didn't enjoy the time spent with family as the clock counted down to midnight, but my wife and I chose to let the kids stay up through midnight. So my family's sitting around playing games, eating some party food, and we're watching the the Nashville New Year's thing. It was like a, a country music special. And I thought, well, I guess they're they're just going to do their own thing, their own ball drop in Nashville. And then my thought was, well, I, I prefer that over the Times Square stuff. I, I really don't want the boys seeing all the homosexuals <laughs> making out on national television. So I told my brother, hey, just, just leave it on this channel because I don't want them to see all that stuff. And of course, I mean, none of us wanted to see that. Well, it gets to about 10 till, so we get the boys with us around the TV, but then something weird happens. It's like all of the network stations switched over to Times the, the Times Square feed. So I just told my wife, um, you know, let's just be ready to, to shield their innocent little eyes from whatever uh, they put on there. And sure enough, in prophetic but depressing fashion, as soon as the ball completed its drop and the, the new year numbers 2024 lit up, the very first shot was of two dudes making out with each other. Thankfully, we were ready for it. So the kids didn't see anything and everybody scrambled to change the channel real quick. But are we really surprised? Of course not. In the last month or so, we've seen the Pope green light the blessing of same-sex couples taking no moral position on the issue. Hopefully you haven't seen the congressional staffer having gay sex in the Capitol building. Uh, thousands of Methodist churches have just left the UMC over this issue. And of course, last year we, we did an entire episode covering the increasing affirmation of the LGBTQ plus movement by so-called Christian churches all across America. In fact, it's one of our most watched and listened to episodes to date. The first camera shot on national TV to ring in the new year is indicative of the moral and cultural rot America has progressively hurtled towards for decades. Critics, and even critics who profess to be Christian, would express that these individuals are perfectly within their civil freedoms or their God-given freedoms to do so. But they could not be more incorrect, as we'll see today. I'm Blake Watson, and this is We the Free. One of the best ways you can help our show other than by sharing the content is by picking up some We The Free merch at wethefreeshow.com. You can be the salt and light you were meant to be by wearing the salt and light shirt or by sipping your coffee from the salt and light mug or you can sport the God Bless America shirt and of course the classic We The Free Crest Tea. We've even got stickers and a smells like freedom candle, that's right. So check out our new merch at wethefreeshow.com. Over the last couple of weeks, I've received a bunch of negative comments about my reaction to the Christian Navy veteran destroying the satanic altar in the Iowa State Capitol building. In my previous episode, I said the following. Rhinos uh, will say that we have to have, we, we have to have the, the satanic display because it's religious equality. But anybody with a brainstem knows that Religious freedom does not mean that anybody can do anything, just as freedom of speech doesn't mean anyone can say anything. Listen to me. This is an important lesson. Liberty is best enjoyed within boundaries. That means the freest people are not those who can just do whatever they want. They are those who enjoy themselves within the confines of statutes and rules. This is true in society. This is true in spirituality. At Metal Dave 08096 responded, freedom of religion doesn't just mean Christianity. We can be any religion we'd like, regardless 
of if you agree with them or not. Your religion doesn't hold any ground over anyone else's. Dave here intends to imply that the Satanic Temple of Iowa represents a religious organization and that their religious actions should be uninhibited by the restrictions of the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Greg Bass or Bass said, Your Christian hate brought this on yourself. Billy or really random said, Mr. Preacher Man, are you saying it's okay for me to go destroy some crosses and nativity scenes because I find Christianity evil? Because you're excusing it the other way around. The Rusty Wastelander said, Your entire video is, quote, you have freedom, sort of, only if you agree with what I believe, end quote. Mule Skinner said, So freedom of religion is not allowed? What country are you in? Well, I'm going to respond to all of this today because it's incredibly, incredibly important. And it will never not be important to understand biblical liberty and what the founders intended by their legal and historic expressions of natural law, civil liberties, and civil rights. Since I am a Christian and my worldview is determined by what I'm convinced is the true explanation of reality, good and evil, right and wrong, I must begin with what was the basis for the liberties expressed in the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution of the United States. I'm not talking about Jefferson or Madison. I'm not talking about John Locke or John Calvin. I'm not talking about Martin Luther or St. Augustine or even the ancient philosophers. I'm talking about what all of these men viewed as the source of liberty for thousands of years, I might add. That is the Almighty God who has expressed in His written word what freedom is. I'm not talking about freedom from the penalty of sin, though that is incredibly important. I'm talking about Christian liberty in the communal sense because that is what the civil liberties of the Constitution stand upon. We don't have time today for a full treatise on liberty, but I want to speak directly to the God-given liberties and the civil liberties we enjoy as Americans. The Apostle Paul had a lot to say about freedom. In Galatians 5, he said, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. First of all, he essentially defines the Christian life as a life of liberty. And, and this was in contrast to both secularism and Judaism. But then he explains that our liberty doesn't mean we can go about doing whatever we please or whatever makes us happy. He said, don't use your freedom for the flesh. In other words, don't use your God-given freedom to satiate your carnal desires. Paul goes on to describe what these deeds of the flesh are in the following verses of that same chapter. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you before, he's implying, that those who practice such things will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Many would assume indulging yourself in those things that he listed is the true definition of liberty, doing whatever you want to do. But this demonstrates that true freedom, true freedom is within limits. From an eternal perspective, the Christian reads these verses and discerns that freedom properly enjoyed in this life leads to freedom in eternal life, where freedom abused in this life leads to no freedom after life. So in this letter to the Galatians, Paul described the proper way to use our God-given liberty. Yet 
He was also kind of discreetly warning us of the consequences of mishandling this liberty. In other letters, he was a lot clearer in this warning. Like, for example, in, in Romans 14, 12 through 16, he said this, So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. All right, some context here. At this point in time in the, in the Greco-Roman world, there was a lot of worship of the Greek and Roman gods, which entailed animal sacrifices. Well, let's say, for example, the Corinthians sacrificed an animal in worship to Aphrodite. They would, at the conclusion of the ceremony, take the meat and sell it to the public. And some Christians viewed consuming this food as immoral, while others saw no issue. The first thing Paul says is really important. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And he connected that to not putting a stumbling block or an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Our subject today is, is freedom. So with our first two passages in mind, Galatians 5 and Romans 14, uh, God in his glorious nature gives us liberty. But we will one day give an account as to how each of us has utilized the freedom we were given. Galatians warns us to not use it as, as an opportunity for our flesh. And Romans says that doing so could be a stumbling block or a hindrance to somebody else, your neighbor. The, the subject matter of Romans 14 is actually made even more obvious in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's really no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. There's just one God. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But, listen to this, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened, or you could say encouraged, to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul essentially says that he's free to consume whatever food he wants. He has that liberty. But if using his freedom to do so causes someone else to violate their conscience, what wasn't sin becomes sinful. This is such an important concept that shows us the abuse of liberty is, is morally wrong. Paul said, I'm not going to take that chance. And he said in much simpler terms, be very careful with your liberty. So it's abundantly clear from the Word of God that liberty is not a, a free-for-all. It's, it's not a pass to just do whatever you want, whenever you want, with, with whomever you want. In fact, this got me thinking about liberty as, as some sort of currency God gives us liberty, and, and He expects us to use it carefully 
and wisely and prudently. And if we properly utilize liberty, it it begets or rather uh, maintains liberty while abusing it or investing it poorly, wastes it or, or destroys liberty. And this is what you can see from the Apostle Paul in all those passages, Galatians, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. In other words, investing your freedom in the right things preserves freedom and can sometimes create more freedom, while spending your freedom on the wrong things wastes freedom. So let me give you some examples. Tim Keller said, A fish, because it absorbs oxygen from water, rather than air, is only free if it is restricted and limited to water. Does the fish have the freedom to leap from its water? Of course it does. And and many fish have died from that. The point is, the fish is actually freest when it uses its freedom wisely. When it enjoys its freedom within the the God-given or the natural limits Consider a love relationship, like a a close friendship or a marriage. Keller says, if you want the freedoms of love, the fulfillment, security, sense of worth that it brings, you must limit your freedom in many ways. To experience the joy and, and freedom of love, you must give up your personal autonomy. Healthy love uh, relationships involve mutual, unselfish service a mutual loss of independence. The misconception of so many is that serious relationships, or specifically marriage, is stifling and enslaving or oppressive. But this describes a genuine loving relationship where two people are unselfishly loving each other, giving preference to the other person, not uh, or serving the other, not spending all of their freedom on themselves, as as Paul was describing. So if we continue this idea of freedom as an investment, if I utilize my freedom to invest in the other person, it compounds our freedom, our freedom within the relationship. If I use my personal freedom to invest in myself or even someone else outside of of the relationship, I've likely lost tremendous freedom in the given relationship. In similar fashion to the fish, my wife cannot and my Lord will not uh, prevent me from using my freedom to do whatever I may want to do. But if I only ever use my freedom to do what I wish, it's ultimately going to frustrate my wife and, and grieve my God and cause judgment for myself. As Paul said, we will give an account. Now, with, with this biblical basis, not only for this lesson, but for the authors whose documents we will examine, let's, let's fast forward many years from the eternal God and from the first century Christian church to the 17th century in England. A, a certain philosopher and political theorist, John Locke, was building upon this very idea of liberty which has in turn shaped much, uh, very much Western political thought. Um, we're not going to study his philosophy or uh, even his theology, but rather how his understanding of biblical liberty shaped our society today. Locke developed the idea of a government which protected natural rights, i.e. Uh, God-given liberties. He was the first one to suggest that it was the government's role to protect these inalienable rights, and that if a government fails in this duty, the people have the right to alter or abolish it. He argued against religious coercion and for religious freedom, and it was in his writing, The Two Treatises of Government in 1690, that these things were expressed, which would eventually serve as great inspiration for Thomas Jefferson and others. Here's what Locke articulated in just one section of this long treatise. Though this be a state of liberty, yet it is not a state of license. And we'll talk about the distinction between liberty and license in a moment. Locke says this, 
Though man in that state have an uncontrollable liberty to dispose of his person or possessions, yet he has not liberty to destroy himself. But where some nobler use than its bare preservation calls for it, the state of uh, nature has a law of nature to govern it, which obliges everyone. He's describing natural law here, of which you'll see he means God-given. He's saying that God-given freedom must not be abused, which he says will destroy us or inhibited, but but that we have a, a certain obligation. He says no one ought to harm another in his uh, life, health, liberty, or possessions. For men, being all the workmanship of one omnipotent and, and infinitely wise maker, all the servants of one sovereign master sent into this world by his order and about his business, they are his property, whose workmanship they are, made to last during his, not one another's, pleasure. It's clear there that the the infinitely wise maker grants his liberty to use for his purposes. Going back to our our currency analogy, this this makes uh, me think of the the parable of the talents. Um, The wealthy man entrusts certain amounts of money to three servants as he goes out of town with the expectation that they, they do something with what he's entrusted to them. You can go read the story in Matthew 25, but Locke seems to articulate something very similar in regard to these God-given liberties. They belong to God, but He gives them to us to use for His purposes. Locke continues, Everyone, as he is bound to preserve himself and not to quit his station willfully, so by the like reason, when his own preservation comes not in competition, ought he as much as he can, to preserve the rest of mankind, and may not, unless it be to do justice on an offender, take away or impair the life, or what tends to the preservation of the life, the liberty, health, limb, or goods of another. This political philosophy even laid some of the groundwork for the abolition of slavery, but there you have it. Locke says, we should preserve ourselves But our God-given rights to life, liberty, health, etc. are to be used for others in service to God. And he's pretty clear that the only excusable case in hindering these rights to answer a really important question is to do justice on an offender because that revocation will then preserve the life, liberty, health, etc. of others. Now, We could talk about Locke's ideas for days and weeks, but consider now our Declaration of Independence. It says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jefferson expressed in much more succinct phrasing the exact ideas that Locke articulated a century prior, that human rights are granted by God, not by government. Jefferson almost repeated verbatim the list of God-given rights that Locke inscribed, life, liberty, and though Locke said property, I'll show you how Jefferson's adaptation to uh, the pursuit of happiness sneaks property rights in through the back door. Let's focus on the three God-given rights Jefferson mentions, beginning with life. This God-given or natural right was understood back to the classical philosophy, and I would argue even much farther back than that. In fact, I would argue that this is intrinsic within every person. We just disagree over who or what bestows this right to life. And mainly in America, many are so mentally depraved, they don't recognize this right for the unborn persons. Let's move on, though. Glenn S. Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut, he wrote a fantastic book on limited government and Christian resistance called Slaying Leviathan. 
In this book, Professor Sunshine says, The classical definition of liberty is the freedom to act as one wills within the bounds set by natural, a.k.a. God, and divine law and the laws of the state. This is incredibly important in understanding what the founders viewed as freedom. Let's read that again. The classical definition of liberty is the freedom to act as one wills within the bounds set by natural and divine law and the laws of the state. To defend the right to liberty, there was a renewed insistence on natural and divine law as a boundary the sovereign could not trespass. In the American founding, Professor Sunshine here is saying they operated from natural or divine law to protect liberty from whoever could serve as our leaders, the sovereign. He continues, Specifically, liberty referred to the freedom to pursue good ends of your own choice within the bounds of natural and divine law. Liberty thus included a moral imperative. The only legitimate ends had to be virtuous themselves and had to be pursued by virtuous means. Again, in- incredibly important to understand genuine liberty, how, how God views liberty and how the founders viewed liberty. Liberty is the freedom to pursue good ends of your own choice within the limits or bounds of natural and divine law, not to just do whatever you want to do. The traditional word to describe this was virtue. Virtue was an important word to the founders. For centuries, it had been recognized that virtue was essential, essential to the survival of a republic because without virtue, people begin to make decisions out of greed, pride, self-interest, and the result is inevitably the collapse of the republic. True liberty must therefore be undergirded by a virtuous population, and liberty must be used to develop and promote virtue. We're going to continue with our founding documents, but this already clarifies what I expressed a couple weeks ago. There is absolutely nothing good and virtuous about erecting a satanic statue in the Iowa State Capitol building. In fact, there are a lot of things Americans do in the name of liberty that are completely opposed to virtuosity, which we'll talk about in a moment. But this brings us to a critical distinction, which uh, Sunshine points out. The alternative to liberty is license. License is negative freedom. That is, freedom from restraint. Licentious people pursue their desires without regard for any rules or restrictions or, or on their behavior. Freedom to them means that no one can tell them what to do or to tell them uh, that what they're doing is wrong. The words license and licentious come from the same Latin, which basically means unrestrained. And as you've seen thus far, uh, this is not what liberty really means. Liberty has been clearly understood to mean freedom within restraint. License is to be without restraint. Sunshine says, No political thinker in the centuries leading up to the founders believed that we had a natural right to license only to liberty. And yet today, freedom is overwhelmingly understood as negative freedom, as license. The rise of moral and cultural relativism killed liberty. He says, moral and cultural relativism killed liberty, implying that these these things gave rise to licentiousness. Long lesson short, moral and cultural relativism asserts that there is no such thing as objective or intrinsic morality, good and evil, or even objective truth. In other words, there is no such thing as absolute truth or universal truth, even though making a claim like that defeats the whole viewpoint. Um, To detail it a bit further, we could describe this as individual relativism because it posits that each person, every individual, 
determines what is right or wrong in their own eyes. And there is no external objective standard to, to judge these beliefs. This raises serious, serious problems, culturally speaking. Sunshine says, If relativism is true, there is no natural or divine law and no boundaries within which to operate. There is no proper purpose to use our freedom for, only our personal choices operating within a moral vacuum. And this is precisely what aids in the cancer of our Western society. When truth is subjective, morality is subjective, and, and virtue is subjective. It's, it's whatever anyone wishes them to be. If, if, if I believe it's virtuous to kill babies in the womb, who's to tell me I'm wrong? If I believe it's virtuous to slaughter individuals because of their nationality, their ancestry, or their religion, who's going to stop me? If I want to chop off my body parts and tell you I'm the gender I think myself to be and demand you conform to my truth, there's not a chance you can disagree with me. You can't tell me what's right and wrong because I decide that. Understand? Professor Sunshine goes on to say, virtue in the classical sense of character traits that are intrinsically good was understood by the founders as necessary for a republic, yet in a world where there are no intrinsic goods, virtue is dead. And if there is no virtue, there can be no liberty. Freedom has no purpose and is reduced to solipsistic, which means extreme self-centeredness, license. The third God-given liberty, which Jefferson sort of made his own, is the pursuit of happiness. Now, in case you haven't picked up on the, the theme in this episode, this one is not what you think it is. And as you should know now, uh, this doesn't mean anyone can do anything that makes them happy. Professor Glenn Sunshine explains, Happiness was Jefferson's translation of the ancient Greek word eudaimonia, according to Aristotle, the purpose of life itself. Eudaimonia is a Greek term usually translated as flourishing or uh, fulfillment or well-being. If you've ever studied Greek philosophy, you know that this was a central concept for uh, many philosophers, but you know Socrates, Plato, and especially Aristotle. Eudaimonia was uh, expounded in his work Nicomachean Ethics. He explains it as the ultimate goal of human life and the highest good. It is the state of living in accordance with your nature and realizing your full potential. It was not about feeling circumstantially happy or experiencing some kind of pleasure. In fact, Aristotle believed that true eudaimonia comes from living a virtuous life. This is the idea which Jefferson expressed in the Declaration as a God-given right, which no one can impede. Everyone is endowed by the Creator with the unalienable right to pursue a life of gratifying virtue, not a life of hedonism. Remember, though, John Locke didn't say the pursuit of happiness. He said property. Sunshine explains. Jefferson's understanding of the pursuit of happiness also sneaks property rights in through the back door. To live a life of excellence requires productive property, which gives us the means and opportunity to pursue eudaimonia. He believed that the farmer was the best type of citizen in a republic, since farming required discipline, diligence, prudence, hard work, patience, all the virtues. And I won't tell you by contrast how he felt about the city folk. But Sunshine's point here is that Jefferson believed, and the other founders by extension, that the pursuit of happiness, or eudaimonia, was most commonly achieved by those who worked the land because their productivity required all the virtuous things, discipline, diligence, prudence, hard work, etc. Eventually, 
at the ratification of the United States Constitution, the Liberty Amendments were passed. And you can almost summarize the entire Constitution, but especially the Bill of Rights, as this is what the federal government cannot do. <laughs> These amendments were, were not about what Americans could or could not do, but what their government could not do against them. These framers were a group of brilliant men who despised tyranny, which is what they had detached from at the Declaration. It's what they fought a war over. Their commitment was to establish a government for the people, limited yet effective, restrained from totalitarianism. So they built in numerous safeguards. For example, the First Amendment begins like this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This is known as either the, the free exercise clause or the establishment clause. And again, these were about what the government, the government could not do. This restrains the government from two things. One, establishing a national church, as was the case for a very long time in European countries, and it prohibited the government from prohibiting Americans from practicing their religion. I've done an entire episode on this vastly uh, misinterpreted separation doctrine. Um, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that or watch it later, but the First Amendment goes on to include or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and freedom to petition. Let's talk about some of these, but keep in mind everything that we've discussed thus far. What is liberty? How is it opposed to license? What does genuine liberty have to do with virtue? Is liberty individualistic or communal? Reconsider the, the bond between liberty and limitation. And let's start with the most important civil liberty of all, religious freedom. Religious freedom does not mean that you can do whatever you want from religious conviction. Otherwise, we would excuse September 11th, uh, Hamas's attacks from October 20, uh, 2023. We should excuse Jim Jones for the Kool-Aid. Why not? Al-Qaeda was e expressing their religious beliefs when they crashed those planes. Hamas was obedient to Allah when they slaughtered those Jews. Jones was just leading his church in, in a revolutionary suicide. No, obviously we can't do that because relativism is a sham. There is absolute truth, meaning there, there is intrinsic good and evil. Therefore, expressions of uh, religious freedom must be expressions that are conducive to virtue. Otherwise, we would not condemn and punish those who commit awful crimes in the name of religion. Next is freedom of speech. Freedom of speech does not mean that you can say whatever you want. That's why we have things like hate speech, incitement of violence, defamation, obscenity, threats. Obviously, God and the founders never intended to unleash the uncontrolled tongues of the masses. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. This is precisely what the founders meant. The right of, of free speech is not a license to say whatever you want. Instead, your freedom to speak is to be used for such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, not for unwholesome words. Remember the emphasis on virtue. Freedom of the press. Freedom of the press does not mean these media companies can publish or broadcast whatever they want. 
True or not? The, the point was to report information about our governors and representatives to the people, to facilitate transparency and accountability, not to lie and concoct and manufacture stories to intentionally undermine leaders and parties and groups of people, etc., not to addict the people on your sensational emotionalism, not to serve as public relations for a particular party, not to fester as a business greedy for ad dollars and clicks. It was a liberty not to be infringed for the preservation of the republic, to retain a virtuous place. And even when you examine the Second Amendment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, it doesn't mean that anyone can do anything they want with their guns. You should be picking up on the theme here, but other than being a safeguard against tyranny, all of this, what was the Second Amendment to be used for? Preserving a just and virtuous society. This leads us to quite an important question we touched on earlier, which is, is it just then for a person incarcerated to be deprived of these civil liberties or natural liberties? Well, that's what happens. In fact, in some cases, still, there are those who are deprived of their God-given rights, their lives, liberty, and, and their pursuit of happiness. How are these things just? Well, this is what happens when someone abuses their civil liberties or deprives someone of their natural rights. If you take someone's life, you demonstrate that you are a threat to a just and virtuous society. If you abuse your freedom of speech to spur something unethical or sinful or wicked, you are a threat to a just and virtuous society. In other words, if you are a threat to others' lives and liberties, yours will be deprived as you spend extended time or permanent time in a place devoid of liberty. Again, as a safeguard for the freedoms of everyone else. This is exactly what John Locke expressed in his second treatise of government. Here's another important objective truth for our case study today. Religion is what you believe. Religion is the worship of something. Everybody believes something. Everybody worships something. There is no one, no one, irreligious, because everyone believes in and worships something. If you don't worship God, you worship the self or something idolic. In other words, every single person that has ever consciously lived is religious and participates in worship. In the case of the Iowa State Capitol building uh, permitting a satanic temple to establish an altar there, is that an exercise of religious freedom? Well, since religion is whatever you believe and whatever you worship, then I guess so. But is this expression conducive to virtue? I think the vast majority of people today and, and the billions of humans that came before us would resoundingly answer, no. Objective truth is like that of an anchor which keeps the ship in place. Subjective truth is like an iceberg which sinks the ship upon impact. As society has sailed away from truth, the abuses of liberty and licentiousness have steered us inadvertently into a behemoth iceberg submerging our titanic republic beneath the icy waters. Which miracle is more likely, the salvation of our sinking vessel or the rescue of those remaining passengers clinging for dear life to the fragments of truths for which our once esteemed ship was known? Our first president and incomparable forefather, George Washington, once said, The preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the Republican model of government are justly considered deeply, perhaps as finally, 
staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. In other words, it's up to us. And who better to lead that charge, the preservation of divine liberties and virtuosity, than the Bride of Christ? Now let's get to the newsfeed. There is no question as to what the top story has been over the last couple of weeks, and that is the limited release of some documents related to Jeffrey Epstein. And I hate to say it, but this was a big, gigantic nothing burger. It was just enough ankle to satiate those in the public or in government who have been demanding to know who Epstein's clients were. Uh, Specifically, people have wanted to see the flight logs of powerful people who have flown on Epstein's jet or the list of guests to his infamous home in the Virgin Islands. Well, that's not what we got. As you'll see, that was intentional. The documents released included emails, texts, depositions, and other materials. But the majority of what the public and conservative media have emphasized comes from a transcript of a videotaped deposition of Virginia Jufre, a woman who was allegedly a victim of Epstein's sex crimes. Um, There's notable names mentioned in these documents, but none, I repeat, none of the mentions, none of them, incriminate anyone or provide any evidence of actual sex crimes. Even with Bill Clinton's name being mentioned 50-plus times and allusions to his attraction to, quote, young girls, uh, doesn't accomplish anything. Yes, testimony is valid evidence in a trial, but juries are expected to make their conclusions beyond a reasonable doubt. So this document dump was meaningless, and it will lead to nothing. So I'm not going to waste any, any of your time talking about all the names mentioned in these depositions. However, there is apparently more coming on January 22nd. And one of these victims has alleged to possess security camera footage from this infamous Epstein Island house. If we see any of that, then we can talk about progress. But what even is the point of all this and what actually happened with Epstein? Mike Cernovich has a theory. He says this, In 2017, my lawyer, Mark Randazza, uh, found a wonky freedom of the press case. There was a defamation case, and, and although Jeffrey Epstein wasn't named as a defendant, the case was central to some, quote, conspiracy theories. Mark, his lawyer, asked me if I wanted to file a motion to intervene. We expected it to be a simple matter. Media interest was almost zero. No one in the free press cared. Then Trump, President Trump, nominated Alexander Acosta to the Secretary of Labor. Acosta had handled the original Epstein criminal case and said Epstein was given kid gloves uh, treatments due to protection from the intelligence community. Epstein was an asset of the FBI. What his exact relation was remains sealed. This is a theory of high probability because Epstein's girlfriend, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, currently serving time behind bars, was the daughter of uh, sort of like an international spy, an intelligence figure that was serving the intelligence for multiple countries around the world. Cernovich is purporting Epstein was also an intelligence asset, but for American intelligence, and and who knows who else. By 2019, the case I sought to intervene in had an orange man bad angle because Acosta was Trump's labor secretary. Even if the motives were impure, at least we were on to the races. Hundreds of thousands of dollars later, a trip to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and, and a lot of fighting 
we had a batch of documents ready to be unsealed. And you have to understand, this is because of Epstein's high-profile relationships. He was a, a financier and, and likely a lot more for some seriously powerful politicians, world leaders, business tycoons, etc., like presidents of the United States. Therefore, the details surrounding his case would logically be confidential. So Cernovich and his team were fighting to get this information out to the public, as the public desired and as freedom of the press implies. And then this happened. The weekend before the documents were made public, the Southern District of New York arrested Epstein quietly when he landed his private jet on an airport from a trip he took in France. No perp walk for Epstein. So after his arrest, and after a press conference was held uh, regarding his arrest, Cernovich wrote this back in 2019. In a widely publicized press conference, the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York announced sex trafficking charges against Jeff Epstein. Epstein was charged for paying minors for massages from 2002 to 2005. Yet what was more newsworthy was what the indictment left out. The indictment against Epstein does not charge anyone except Epstein. And there's nothing to indicate that anyone who flew to Epstein's private island has faced scrutiny. Only Epstein was arrested and charged. But the point is, this happened right as a federal court was about to unseal all these records. The Southern District of New York could have charged Epstein in 2002, 2003, 2004, or at any time until today. Yet they did not file charges until the Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that previously sealed records involving Jeff Epstein would become public record. Thus, they are charging him without implicating anyone else who assisted with his operation. And everyone knows what happened next. Epstein got Epstein. He allegedly committed suicide in his jail cell. And after this, a safe goes missing from Epstein's home. This is what Mike Cernovich says about that. Evidence from Jeffrey Epstein's safe, quote, went missing after an FBI raid. What was in the safe? We'll never know for certain. We do know that the FBI has Jeffrey Epstein's blackmail files. The real Jeffrey Epstein files are the blackmail material. Very powerful forces have made sure we will never see it. So we're just now starting to see a, a drop of water in, in what is a torrent of information on this mysterious criminal. We'll see if any of the recent rumors develop. Speaking of sex criminals and pedophiles, uh, the Golden Globes were this past Sunday. I only watched uh, the highlights, but I was happy to see that Christopher Nolan uh, won for directing and for his movie Oppenheimer to win numerous awards. But uh, there was only one other good thing, really, that happened the whole night, and that was Jim Gaffigan presenting a brand new award for a best stand-up comedy special. Watch what he said. The Golden Globes. I mean, I... I can't even believe I'm in the entertainment industry. I can't. I, you know, it's so unlikely. I'm from a small town in Indiana. I'm not a pedophile. You know, I just... Not as strong of a rebuke as Ricky Gervais from a few years ago, but that was bold and funny, and I loved it. So... Other than those two highlights, the, the night was filled with as much DEI as Hollywood, uh, a Hollywood ceremony could afford. Uh, Dylan Mulvaney was there for his acting role as the woman who ruined Bud Light. And the host was the worst host I've ever seen. So for the hundredth time, don't waste your precious time with these stupid ceremonies. I will let you know what you need to know. Speaking of Hollywood... Uh, Disney has officially tapped the director of their next Star Wars movie, and I cannot believe this. They're going back to the original creator of Star Wars, George Lucas. I'm just kidding. Instead uh, of Star Wars riding off into the sunset, 
uh, Disney is going to continue to drive it and everything else they possess straight into the ground because their next Star Wars movie will be directed by a Canadian-Pakistani feminist documentarian, Charmaine Obeid Chinoy. Why? Is she some incredibly talented filmmaker? Is she a visionary director, a real up-and-comer? No, it's because she's a super, ultra, mega, radical feminist. But I'm probably the only person you'll hear say this. I understand her radical leanings. She was born in Pakistan. Her documentaries have covered atrocities and injustices committed against Pakistani women. I get it. But that has unfortunately led her to such misandry, the opposite of misogyny. She clearly has a hatred for men, which has led her to uh, radicalization as a feminist. And, and for this, I, genu I genuinely feel sorry for the woman. But it's this philosophy, which she comes by honestly, that will continue to tank Star Wars into the dirt. Because Disney can't seem to, to connect the dots here that audiences are not interested in political messaging and propaganda in their films and TV shows. They just want to be entertained. But I guess Disney will never learn, and other studios like Universal and Warners will just continue to beat them at the box office. Speaking of bombs, it's been a while since I spoke about anything regarding the current conflict in the Holy Land. However, this story from the UAE's Associated Press totally caught me off guard. John Gramble uh, wrote this last week. Two bombs exploded and killed at least 103 people Wednesday at a commemoration for a prominent Iranian general slain by the U.S., in a 2020 drone strike, Iranian officials said as the Middle East remains on edge over Israel's war with Hamas in Gaza. This is talking about Qasem Soleimani. So they were having something like a funeral or just a service in, in honor of him. No one immediately claimed responsibility for what appeared to be the deadliest militant attack to target Iran since its 1979 Islamic Revolution. Iran's leaders vowed to punish those responsible for the blasts, which wounded at least 211 people. The explosions occurred near his gravesite as long lines of people gathered for the event. So immediately, Western media assumed, and I'm sure Iran assumed, that Israel was to blame for this assault. The attacks came a day after a deputy head of the Palestinian militant group Hamas was killed in a suspected Israeli strike in Beirut. This was presumed evidence that Israel, or maybe even the United States, was to blame. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, said the attackers will face a harsh response, though he didn't name any possible suspect. Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi added, Undoubtedly, the perpetrators and leaders of this cowardly act will soon be identified and punished. Well, they didn't have to identify them uh, because they identified themselves. Now I'm reading from The Hill. They said, ISIS has claimed responsibility for a deadly Iran bombing that killed more than 80 people and wounded scores more. ISIS, seen as a terrorist group, by most of the world, said in a widely circulated statement that suicide bombers detonated explosive belts in the middle of the crowd that had gathered in the southeastern Iranian city of Kerman. So ISIS is the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. They are a terrorist group of Sunni Muslims. They seek to establish an Islamic State governed by Sharia law, and it is for this reason that they are anti-Shia and anti-Iranian. Why do I raise this story? Well, everyone immediately assumed Israel around the world. But what the world, and specifically the West, needs to know is that there are endlessly warring factions of radical Islamic groups that wish to kill each other, again, in the name of their God. And yet, they're united 
in their hatred of the Jews. Now back to the UAE Associated Press article. In Beirut, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah called the people who died in the attacks martyrs who died on the same road, cause, and battle that was led by Soleimani. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the attack shocking in its cruelty and cynicism, while Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan condemned the heinous terrorist attacks. Neighboring Iraq expressed condolences, and the European Union issued a statement offering its solidarity with the Iranian people. What's interesting is that ISIS and Israel, though surely enemies of each other, are both fighting against the Islamic Republic of Iran. And it makes you wonder about that ancient proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Could we see an alliance? I, I don't know, but I want to know what you think. Let me know in the comments. Well, that's going to do it for me. What will it be next time? We'll see. For now, go and be the salt and light you were meant to be, and we'll see you next time on Be The Food.